Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod in week six of the coronavirus shutdown, where there's still a lot of confusion about what's really going on in our fight against this invisible enemy. The numbers keep growing every day. Now a million cases of COVID-19 in this country and some 56,000 lives lost. It looks like there's still a long way to go before we have it behind us. And yet some governors are acting as if the worst is already over. Well, today we wanted to get a good factual report on exactly where we stand on the coronavirus pandemic. And nobody has stayed on top of it better than Politico's daily morning briefing on healthcare politics and policy called the Politico Pulse. You may remember a few weeks ago, we spoke with Pulse co-author Dan Diamond. Today, we join another member of the Politico Pulse team, healthcare reporter, Adam Cancren. Adam, it's good to see you. Thanks for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod. Thank you for the invite. Happy to be here. So, you know, every day uh, we see in some areas some signs of improvement with the coronavirus, but also every day on the macro level, the number of cases and the number of deaths keeps growing. So let's start out. Can you just give us some idea of exactly where we are with the status quo? Have we peaked and have started the downhill curve or are we still climbing uphill? Absolutely. So by all accounts, and we are about two, two and a half to almost three months into this, uh, into this epidemic that quickly became a pandemic. Uh, we are, by all accounts, past the peak that we can tell right now. So the, the good news here is that we've reached a point where we no longer have to worry at this point about health systems being overrun, about hospitals for now not having uh, enough hospital beds, things like ventilators to take care of the surge of patients. That being said, we still have a long way to go. The downslope is very far down. Uh, last I checked, we're at about 965,000 confirmed cases. And in the next couple of days, we're almost sure to top 1 million. Uh, and we have had more than 54,000 Americans die since February. So that, in just a couple of months, is more than the entire U.S. death toll of the Vietnam War. So that's where we're at. I mean, it is the good news is we are likely past the peak. The bad news is that this is still just a rolling, massive public health crisis that will probably be with us for the next several months. The next thing we really have to worry about is uh, a resurgence of outbreaks uh, as some states start to try to reopen. Uh, And in the fall, when flu season kind of comes back and we have to worry about a resurgence there as well. Uh, I want to get into both of those areas with you, but you, you alluded to this. It was just a couple of weeks ago that there were many stories about hospitals not having enough beds. They're setting up beds at the Java Center in New York, in Central Park in New York. Uh, the worry about ventilators and the rush to get as many ventilators. 
that that the hospitals would run out of room and they would run out of equipment. That didn't happen, right? Why? It didn't. And what's been interesting to see is there's been a kind of uh, rolling set of crises, right? So if you remember early on, the big concern was do we just have the sheer amount of hospital beds uh, to house you know, this wave of patients? And in response, the hospitals responded by essentially clearing their, their facilities out, right? So you had hospitals that in mm. some cases were just sitting empty, mm-hmm. waiting for this crush of new patients, right? So that was how we dealt with the first issue. The second crisis was sheer number of ventilators, right? And so for a, a few weeks, that was the big worry. We weren't going to have enough. Um, the federal government took took some steps to kind of try and free up ventilators. There was this kind of massive shifting of sending ventilators around the country and pr- producing new ones. And we think that now that we're past the peak, there's not as much of a concern of, of that. Uh, one of the things that's persisted throughout the entire uh, pandemic so far is this concern about protective equipment, about PPE. Yes. Uh, and the problem here is that PPE is just needed constantly. Um, any kind of procedure you do, any patient you see, you have to put the gloves on, you have to put the mask on, you're not supposed to use it more than once. So we are already doing things like wearing masks for multiple patients that are not recommended under normal circumstances. It's going to continue to be an issue because as hospitals you know, start clearing these coronavirus patients out and start taking more elective patients back in, there's still going to be that kind of demand. So it's been interesting because we've seen this kind of rolling supply and demand. The last we're hearing of right now is, you know, more basic things, hospital gowns, that that kind of stuff that will continue to be an issue. Right. Uh, and then I guess the last thing I'll mention, and we can get into this much more, is, is obviously testing and the uh, constant need for, for more tests. That's exactly where I was going <laughs> next. Doesn't it all depend on, uh, I, I guess, how can we know where we are if we don't know who's got it and who doesn't, and we can't know that without testing, right? And that's been the difficulty this entire time, is if you're not testing and if you're not testing a sufficient amount, sufficient frequency, you don't know how the virus is spreading, where it's spreading. What's really needed is an ability to kind of surveil the virus, for lack of a better word, to know how it's how it's moving and how it's changing and, and who it's affecting. And right now, testing has ramped up significantly, but it's nowhere near what's needed. And I'll give you an example. Uh, right now, we're at about 5.5 million tests that have been run, which is great. It's been a great ramp up at, actually in the last couple of weeks. Um, we've seen about 2 million more tests come online. So significant improvement there. But the recommendation is at the lowest point, we'll need about 3 million tests just per week mm-hmm. to kind of be able to feel like we have a good sense of how this virus is behaving and where it's spreading. So you can see the kind of gap there. Uh, and that's frankly just going to take time. It takes time to produce these tests. It takes time to produce the materials uh, that are related to them, the swabs and the regents and the things you need to run them and to get them to the different areas where they're in highest demand. Uh, so that continues to be a, a really persistent problem and the thing that's that's holding us back at this point. Yeah, well, what is the the drag? I mean, what 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 is holding it back? Um, just did we get too late of a start? Or are they not producing enough tests? Or there, there are a couple of reasons, and and I'd say it's still a little bit of a mystery what exactly is is the holdup. But there are a couple that I can kind of run through. One, we did get a late start. So if you go back uh, to the early days of this crisis. 
the CDC was developing a test. They thought they had they had developed one that they could distribute to the public labs all around the country. It turned out that the vast majority of those tests did not work. And so we lost these two or three weeks where preliminary testing could have gone on. Instead, you just had the virus spreading and us completely blind almost to, to what, what was happening. So those that time, those weeks are weeks that set us back that we are just not going to be able to catch up to, right? So you're already behind the eight ball. The second issue is, again, just sheer manufacturing. We are not, we're not supplied and we're not ready for uh, a crisis of this scale. And so ramping up production takes time. Uh, and there has been a reluctance uh, from the president, from the federal government, to use the Defense Production Act, which essentially gives the government the ability to go in, say to a manufacturer, you're effectively working for us now. Any mm -hmm. We need you to produce these tests and give them to us uh, as fast as possible. So there's been a reluctance to use that, that power. And as a result, it's been a slower ramp up of, of tests and test materials. It's not at this point exactly clear what needs to happen next or what can happen next in order to get us from 5.5 million tests overall to you know, 3 million a week. Uh, some, some that I talk to say we just need the actual physical tests. Others say you know, there's issues with the materials and getting them. Uh, you can talk to other groups where they say it's just a matter of capacity, of having the space, of having the ability to have people drive to a university parking lot or to a, um, to a stadium and be physically there to get the tests. So logistically, supply chain-wise, it's a lot of just details in there that need to be worked out. I, I want to ask you about the antibody tests later, but just speaking about these tests as to whether people have the virus or not, um, are there some tests that are better than others? Are they all equally good? We know about the nose swab. We know about the finger prick. Um, you know, Are they all reliable? That's, I think, something that is still being studied. So the assumption is that vast majority of these are reliable. The difficulty is when you're trying to get these tests out as fast as possible, they're not going to go through all the stress testing that you normally would, right? So there's always a possibility that, you know, tests go out and they're not as accurate as you would like. And therefore, now you're having to run multiple tests on people. Now you're kind of questioning the results. Mm -hmm. So overall, there are, there are, you're right, there are multiple different types of tests. They all do, you know, try to accomplish the same job, but through different ways. Some are swabs, you know, some are these kind of rapid 15-minute uh, tests. Um, the, the difficulty, though, is you have to balance speed versus quality, right? Uh, and getting a lot of these out while also being reasonably confident that the ones that you're sending out are going to be giving you the right results. So without wider testing, do we really know how many cases there are? I mean, I keep seeing these stories that perhaps the number is a lot higher because people might have had it and didn't know. Or... It's it's likely much higher. Uh, so I said we had about 54,000 who have died since February. Then that number is likely significantly higher by the thousands, tens mm. of thousands, uh, solely because, you know, you're only you're only counting people who have come into a hospital, for example, who have died or who have had a confirmed case there. There are people that obviously were missing, people who die in their homes, people who uh, die from you know comp complications of coronavirus, but also other symptoms. Um, so we're just not getting a full 
picture. Uh, and this is the case with, you know, pretty much any disease, especially any kind of large scale crisis like this. Um, but especially now where hospitals, where providers are just trying to kind of triage and stay above water, you're not getting the to the patient accuracy that that ideally we would like. And now the challenge facing uh, every one of the 50 states uh, is to reopen or not to reopen. And we've yeah. seen uh, that already Georgia, particularly South Carolina, Tennessee, a couple of other states have eased the um, restrictions somewhat, at least, to allow businesses to open. Uh, are they doing the right thing is, or is it too early? Well, time will tell, and it depends on who you ask about that. If you talk to epidemiologists, public health community, uh, I think the over the overall feeling is that it is too early, and for the reasons that we we've, we've talked about, there's not enough testing in states like Georgia. There's not even convincing evidence that they are past the peak of cases yet, and so what you're doing if your goal is to kind of suppress this overall case count, what you're doing now is introducing new variables where you could where you could kind of fuel a resurgence or a new outbreak. So in Georgia, for example, uh, if you feel like you've now just kind of started to get control of this virus, you've kind of assured that your facilities will not be overrun. Now you're opening up business get businesses again, you're putting people back in groups and tight clusters, and you're just essentially allowing the conditions that the virus needs to start spreading again. So it's an experiment. I mean, if you if you ask the public health community, like public health experts, they're going to say it's too soon. That Then again, there are you know governors who are looking at the economic toll that this is taking on their states being shut down for you know five, six or seven weeks and saying this is not something that we can kind of go on doing. So it's a little bit of a balance. Uh, the early states are going to tell us enough. In the next couple of weeks, we should be able to see uh, what the impact is of these early states like Georgia, like Colorado, starting to kind of reopen a little bit. What are health professionals looking for uh, to gauge whether or not uh, it's okay to at least start to gradually open up? What you know? What do they want to see? They they want to see a, a few things. One. And ideally, you would have the kind of testing capacity to be right. able to, yeah, you know, rapidly test people and, and, and do it frequently. And honestly, almost countrywide, that's just not going to be the case as of now or in the next couple of weeks. Uh, some other things uh, you want to you want to have a reasonable confidence that you are past the peak of your cases. Right. Because the worst thing and the, the baseline that you do not want to risk is an outbreak that overruns your hospitals, your health system. So you have to have reasonable confidence that the the virus and the cases are on the downslope rather than still going on the upslope. Uh, and beyond that, you want to have just kind of reasonable guidelines for this reopening. You know, nobody's saying, and I think nobody wants to just kind of like a light switch, just flip things back on. Um, that, that I think the consensus is would be a disaster. Uh, what you want to do and what the recommendations are is to do something that's very, very gradual. So if there is a resurgence, uh, if there are bad indications a couple of weeks from now, you can kind of quickly put people back under lockdown and say, you know, we need to we need to roll this back and get back control uh, of, of the virus and of how it's spreading. So what's that going to look like when you say gradual? Um, uh, it doesn't mean um, 
a stadium full of 30,000 people to see a Nats game, for example, right? Um, yeah, that may, that, may be, that may be a while before people feel comfortable doing that. Right. Uh, but does it mean uh, still wearing a mask when you go into any store, for example? Uh, I, I, I saw one of the states where they said restaurants, I think maybe it was Alaska, restaurants can reopen, but you have to be 10 feet away yes. from anybody else. Um, yes, is that, I, I is think that what idea, we're looking at? Those kinds of. Yeah, I think the idea is is you know you may things may end up looking like they did early on in this crisis where there was there was recommendations to just kind of take steps to try and protect yourself and others, right? So, to your point, that includes you know wearing masks when you're out in public, uh, wearing gloves when you're going to be you know in stores and handling things that other people may have been touched that uh, may have touched. Uh, in the case of restaurants, that may mean half capacity, you know, operating at 50% capacity mm. versus 100% to keep people, keep as much distance between, between diners. Uh, same thing with businesses, with grocery stores, limiting the flow of people in and out. Uh, and again, you want to be focusing on businesses that, you know, you feel like can open up with some of these restrictions. Um, but that won't, again, put people in clusters, right? So the idea of, of stadiums opening, um, the idea of anywhere, you know, clubs, concert halls, that's going to be toward the end, uh, I think, because there's it's, it's very difficult to put in any kind of restrictions where that would work without putting people close together. Um, so, yes, you're likely to see small businesses, restaurants, stores, those kinds of things reopen, but with some pretty strict restrictions. One very frightening aspect of this uh, is th that we've seen that the coronavirus disproportionately affects the minority community, particularly the African-American community. Why is that? Well, it's, it's a number of reasons. It's a good point. I was just looking at the data here in, in Washington, D.C., uh, where African-Americans make up about 44 percent of the population and so far almost 80 percent of the deaths. Uh, and that's likely due to a number of things. Um, one, especially in you know a city that's as segregated as DC, the availability of hospitals, of providers, is just kind of disproportionate, right? So, so it's di more difficult for minor minorities, people of color, to get to doctors and hospitals, as, as one example. Uh, secondly, it's just a matter of you know, having the knowledge and being able to distribute, you know, the information, right? Not everybody is watching uh, the president's press briefings every single day, right? And so it's a matter of figuring out a way to distribute the information that people need to convince people to stay in their houses, uh, to to use gloves and masks, et cetera. Uh, and the third is, is, is I think, just kind of a, a, a plain truth everywhere is disproportionately communities of color are these essential health workers, right? Mm -hmm. So they are the ones who are in grocery stores, they're the ones in convenience stores who have been working through all of this and, and working, you know, in a lot of cases for the working poor uh, because they have to and don't really have an, the, the choice that you or I do to be able to kind of stay in our homes. So automatically, the odds for these communities go up significantly. Um, and if you combine that with uh, just the pre-existing health disparities, the higher rates of things like diabetes, and respiratory conditions, that is a combination uh, that doesn't fare well in this situation. Um, and, and that's likely why you're seeing these kinds of disparities in, 
along demographic lines, racial yeah. lines. Right. Uh, Adam, hold that thought right there. And we're going to take a quick break here on the uh, on the Bill Press pod, talking with Adam Cancran, public health reporter for Politico Pulse uh, here on the Bill Press pod. Today, we're brought to you by the Teamsters Union. You know, we think of the Teamsters Union as uh, truck drivers. They are. They represent truck drivers of America but a lot more than that. They are 1.4 million strong through the United States and Canada under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa. And as they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. That's why they're called America's strongest union. We salute the Teamsters. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Direct you to their website at teamster.org. And we're back with Adam Conkren from Politico's Politico Pulse, talking about the current status, where we are now in our efforts to fight this, uh, what President Trump calls the invisible enemy, the coronavirus. Adam, um, are we, you referenced this a little earlier. Uh, let's say we get this enough behind us that things ease up and we get back to something representing normalcy or on the path to normalcy, and then comes the fall and flu season. Could the coronavirus come back? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's one of the uh, biggest concerns that we've heard over the last couple of weeks from public health officials like Tony Fauci, he's our top infectious disease expert, uh, the CDC director, Robert Redfield. This is the main concern because we're not going to get to a point where we have a vaccine by fall. Vaccines, you know, if we can figure out one, is usually takes about a year to a year and a half to develop. So come fall, come flu season, that's not going to be an avail- a possibility. We're also going to get to a point where likely by the fall, several states, many states will have tried to reopen a little bit. So you add on to that the possibility of new outbreaks just simply because the economy has restarted again. Uh, and then just flu season as a definition. So the main concern there is now, you know, you get this double, the more traditional flu and the coronavirus kind of circulating again. If you had the coronavirus and survived it, are you free then? Could you get it again? Or are you immune? It's the biggest unanswered question that I keep looking for a definite answer to. Really? Bottom line, we do not know. The assumption is... Yes, you're immune if you've gotten the coronavirus and recovered from it. And and that is based on the behavior of prior coronaviruses, of just kind of how these kinds of diseases usually work. Uh, But this is a new new virus. It's a new disease. And so there are things like that that we are still studying and don't know a definitive answer to. Um, So the assumption is, yes, the assumption is at some point we will get to herd immunity uh, but it has not been confirmed yet. Well, that gets to the antibody test, correct? Yes, right? yes. Uh, and there are a lot of those out there with apparently mixed results today. Yes, and this goes back to this balance between speed and safety, right? Uh, there are a ton of antibody tests that have kind of flooded the market. Um, and a lot of indications that several of them are not as accurate as they need to be, right? So we're, re- we're running into this concern where antibody tests are needed because it would really give us a great idea of 
how many people have been affected, whether they were symptomatic, asymptomatic. Uh, it's one of the key things that we need to know in order to be able to kind of study and control this 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 pandemic. That being said, there just are a lot of concerns about the accuracy here, and that's because you have these kind of flooding the market, not going through the normal slower review process, um, and so again, this this issue of safety versus uh, versus speed. Will this coronavirus, looking forward? Um, is this going to be a threat forever, uh, or at least <laughs> until we not. get a vaccine? Is, is that I, I hope the not, ultimate but it, answer? It is, it is fair to say until we we get a vaccine. Yes, yes. That's the you know the difficulty of viruses like this is that until there is a vaccine where we can kind of get everybody immune to this, the only weapons we have to fight this are things like social distancing, right? They're very basic things. And that, mm-hmm. and that kind of makes it, you know, unsatisfying because it feels like we should have something more significant. But really the only way to uh, to kind of suppress this virus is by preventing it from spreading. And that's, you know, social distancing, that's hand washing, things like that. So yeah, until until we have a vaccine, this is, it's a, it's a threat, absolutely. And one would hope that the search for a vaccine is on a fast track, but still, on a fast track, you say we're talking a year away. Traditionally, best. it's been about it's been about a year to a year and a half. And again, you know, you're right. This has been something that's fast tracked. Last last check from from my cl- political colleagues is there's at least eight therapeutic treatments that are kind of in the works, uh, and at least five separate efforts to find a a vaccine. Uh, and you know, I think the the, the two most popular uh, treatments that we've heard of right so far is this hydroxychloroquine, which the president for a while uh, was very into, uh, but recently has shown that you know there haven't been really any definitive effects, and actually it may be more dangerous than we thought. Uh, and then this other drug called remdesivir that's still kind of in these trials, so nothing conclusive yet. Um, but yeah, even on the fastest track, we're talking about you know not likely until early next year, mid next year. I, I saw a story somewhere today earlier that Australia and New Zealand have had uh, incredible success in fighting the coronavirus. Uh, the number of cases has gone down dramatically. Um, every day gets less and less. And that the prime ministers both say their goal is to get zero cases in Australia and New Zealand. What have they done that we haven't done? Well, in these in these countries where you're seeing this kind of rapid downslope, it, it's a few things. One is 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 kind of basic. It's a matter of how well people follow the rules, right? So, if you look at cases that have you know countries that have had this rapid downslope, people have adopted social distancing rules very quickly. Uh, there was really an attempt to kind of lock down places that that were showing big outbreaks, and then you know a, a kind of heard of following, following the rules, following the recommendations. And starting uh, early, I guess. And too. starting early, absolutely. Uh, there are other countries, and, and I think Italy is the prime example, uh, that have really troubled public health experts, people studying this issue, because they see a much slower stair-step down in cases, even after hitting the peak. Uh, and the concern there is why exactly that ha- that that's happening. Is it people just not following the rules as well as Australia, New Zealand, South Korea? Uh, or are there other things at play? So 
a lot of unknowns still, unfortunately. Uh, we're early on in the science. But the thing that's easiest, I think, to point to is just whether people are following the public health recommendations uh, or not. You mentioned hydroxychloroquine. I was at the White House briefing when the president talked about this miracle drug. He called it could be a game changer. Uh, and the other drug that you mentioned, which I can never pronounce. Uh, and then, of course, last week, uh, he famously suggested that maybe detergents or Lysol or Clorox or whatever might be the answers, which freaked out a lot of health professionals. Um, so I think we'd have to say charitably that the president's statements on this have been muddled, maybe at best. Um, what impact do statements like that from the White House have on health professionals and the ability of health professionals to get out the truth about the coronavirus? Well, well you're right in that in that primarily the impact is that it's modeling to the overall health message. You know, uh, you talk to a lot of people who have done this kind of crisis response um, back during H1, H1N1, back during, you know, even anthrax. Um, the prime recommendation is to appoint a spokesperson with public health, you know, credentials, somebody who's trusted and go out there and give, you know, advice that is consistent, advice that is grounded in science. And what we've had here, uh, and I think which is, you know, kind of consistent throughout the, the entire Trump administration, is that the president is his own spokesperson. He's going to be the only one who can speak for his administration uh, in any kind of significant way. So as a result, we have had just these rolling press briefings where part of it has been, you know, the, the coronavirus task force and public health officials trying to impart uh, actual health advice. And the other part of it has been, you know, the president trying to come up with every day, you know, reasons to be optimistic, things that he can point to to say, see, we are we're making progress. And, and that's the difficulty in that it muddles what the overall goal is. Uh, it muddles, you know, where we're trying to go here in this and what steps are, are necessary in exchange for, you know, trying to grab onto whatever may be the, the easiest and shortest term solution. And could possibly be dangerous. And, and that's the concern. I mean, what we're seeing with hydroxychloroquine now, uh, which is, the, you know, one of the first drugs that, that the president hyped, is a lot of concerns now about whether it's doing more damage to people who take it than good. Um, there's been some concerns about, you know, whether it does uh, heart damage to the heart, what the longer term effects are. These are things that, again, it takes time to figure mm -hmm. out, it takes time to study the science. And we just essentially skipped a bunch of those steps uh, in going straight to, to hyping it. And one thing we've also seen is that the president doesn't really like when people, particularly health professionals, disagree with things that he says. Uh, and that has gotten some of them in trouble. You broke a story a couple of days ago. Uh, Adam, on Political Pulse, that uh, Secretary Azar may be one of those now in trouble and that there are people uh, with uh, daggers in the White House who are looking maybe to move Azar out uh, because he was getting too much credit for speaking the truth about the coronavirus and the president wasn't. The president denies, of course, your story, that that, that he's very happy with Azar and intends to keep him. Uh, What's the truth here? Yeah, I mean, for, for what it's worth, especially when it comes to Secretary Azar, this has been a long running issue. Um, so this goes, this predates the coronavirus pandemic um, back to last year, where you essentially had, you know, HHS led by the secretary butting heads with 
not only people in the White House, not only White House officials, but even some of his deputies, uh, CMS, the Medicare and Medicaid chief, Seema Verma, they had a, a, a public feud toward the end of the year that, that got so bad that the vice president had to step in and essentially uh-huh. mediate it. Uh, so the knives have been out for Azar from, the, from people in the White House for, for months now. There was a lot of uh, angst and anger over the last few weeks, in particular because of a series of reports about how Trump and how the White House had mismanaged this coronavirus crisis. And people in the White House felt like that was done and fed in part by allies of, of Secretary Azar uh, in a way of in, in order to kind of make HHS come out looking better uh, compared to the White House. So you, you have a lot of this kind of back and forth, a lot of this trying to figure out um, who's trying to knife who in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, what it's resulted in is one, the secretary being largely sidelined from the response. If you watch these press briefings each day, uh, it's a lot of his deputies, Tony Fauci, mm-hmm. a, as an example, who has been up there daily rather than the secretary. Um, and as a result, you have these kind of ongoing discussions uh, about, you know, should we replace the HHS secretary? Is it something that can be done? Uh, right now, the chief hesitation and the reason why, one of the main reasons why it hasn't been done yet is because of you know, the optics of replacing what is essentially your top health official in the middle of a, an all-consuming national you know, public health crisis. Um, so that's, that's, that's a big kind of reason why, um, why, why there's still hesitancy to do it. Uh, do you think his job is secure once the coronavirus is behind us? Well, nobody's job is secure, as we've learned in this administration. <laughs> right. uh, I, I think it's I think it's been clear that uh, Secretary Azar has never really planned on staying beyond the November election. Um, this pandemic is likely going to be with us through the fall, so that may kind of make any of these questions moot. Um, the real question I think is whether the president continues to listen to his health professionals, or whether he gets antsy whether he starts hearing from the economic side of things and starts pushing again to reopen large parts of the country. It's been a constant tug of war. Uh, and to his credit, he has you know, trended back toward you know, the public health experts, back toward Tony Fauci mm-hmm. and Deborah Birx. The question is if that continues. Right. Uh, I know uh, in the White House press corps, we sort of feel that anytime a spokesperson uh, from the podium in the briefing room says the president has total confidence in so-and-so you can be sure they're out the door the next day so we'll, we'll see we're what gonna happens. be tracking it we're gonna we'll be tracking it closely with alex azar adam it's very good of you to join us today thank you and to dan diamond and all of you there political pulse with the great job that you do keeping track of this and uh and, and pr- providing us with the facts on a on a daily basis appreciate it very much and appreciate thank your time you. today Absolutely, anytime. And that's it for today's episode of the Bill Press Pod. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Adam Kangren from Politico Pulse. And we ask you to do us one big favor before you go away, and that is, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe, sign up for the Bill Press Pod. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, just pull up Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, you're in, and then tell your friends to do the same thing so they won't miss any of the upcoming podcasts. And if you don't want to miss another podcast, follow me on Twitter. 
You'll get my tweets every day, plus your notification of when the next podcast is up. Follow me on Twitter, at BillPressPod, at BillPressPod. That's it for today. Stay strong, stay safe, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.